All right, guys, in this last session, I want to think about one of the main characteristics that my special forces friend told me a point man must have is his willingness to speak and follow the orders of his superiors no matter what. And so, you know, no matter what the positive or negative response uh, the superior's words will be perceived as. And I remind you as we finished this last session of A.W. Tozer's words that remind us um, that we are not uh, public relations agents for Christ sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. That's, that's huge. We are not diplomats, but prophets, and our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. Guys, Joshua carries out God's orders and deals with Achan, despite how harsh it appears, concerning Joshua's leadership or how people will perceive God after that act. And God directs Joshua to attack Ai a second time. If you've read, you know the story. And he gives Joshua the battle strategy for victory. And Joshua, now he's back on point again. Things are right again. And the battle is an overwhelming victory. You remember the story. Everyone's full of joy. It's time for celebration, you know. Uh, God is with us, evidenced by a tangible victory or a great accomplishment. And as the man on point, Joshua would fully realize that there are still many people to be conquered and enemies in the land. And so, you know, he's got to have in his mind there are military dangers to deal with. But what is Joshua's next move? Well, we read it in chapter 8, verse 30 to 35. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel on Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The stranger, as well as he who was born among them, half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. And as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before they that should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Father, we ask you in this last session, Lord, what a blessing these men are. Lord, to tolerate me. I know who I am and I know who I'm not. There are men here who probably say to themselves on a regular basis, who am I to speak out with the sin list I have? But Lord, their sin list that has been forgiven and erased, it doesn't erase the bar of walking as Jesus walked that we are all called to. And I often think and tell my brothers, what if Paul had taken that attitude? I can't speak about murder. I can't speak about false religion and tradition because I was such a participant in it. Lord, I pray that you would not only free these men to be your point men, but Lord God, you would energize them and empower them by the power of your Holy Spirit and the filling and indwelling of that Spirit. 
that they would realize they need to consecrate their lives. Some men will go home today and know that they're supposed to turn off their TV. Others will go to their wives and ask forgiveness and put away their computer, their Facebook, all the other foolish things they've wasted their time with rather than pouring into their wives and their children. Free these men and empower them, Lord, that Calvary Chapel Richmond will be a beacon in this place. Help us to do the hard things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we, Deuteronomy chapter 27, guys, verses 2 through 8, displays how Moses gave specific instructions to Joshua and what we see here in verses 30 to 32. It's an act of obedience that Joshua was called to back in chapter 7, right? Or chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Remember verse 7? Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. The altar here is built on Mount Ebal, the Mount of Curses. It's kind of crazy. One altar built on the Mount of Curses, not on Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessings. And what a picture. The sacrifice is the sacred activity of church, if you will, uh, you know, given over to God. This activity is taking place where curses would be pronounced for sinful behavior and disobedience. It's kind of weird if you think about it. It's a reminder that when we gather to celebrate our, you know, our presence in our own Canaan, you know, the land of our salvation, that part of the ongoing message that should be emphasized here is on obedience and on the emphasis on the consequences, both for blessings for obedience and discipline for disobedience. And we do have it. Hebrews 12 is clear about discipline. 1 Peter talks about it. We're going to get to it later. You know, um, Jesus' own words, where he says, you know, two Christians, two disciples, to you and me, if we harm a little one, what? Better that a millstone be thrown around our neck and we be thrown into the sea. And it goes on and on and on. Joshua has the people in their proper place, and it's time to celebrate. I mean, think about it, man. They just, they just trashed Ai almost effortlessly. Nobody died. They conquered. You know, it's kind of like we just finished building our new sanctuary. You know, we just paid the mortgage off. We just built a beautiful family life center that will draw the loss. You know know what I'm talking about, right? And it's time, you know, for this really uplifting message of victory and God's abiding, conquering presence as we cut the tape to the new family life center. And then in verse 33, we find half of these people standing on Mount Ebal and half on Mount Gerizim. And look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 10 through 13. Because this is when Moses was speaking to Joshua long before they got to this place, when this picture that we see was commanded. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 10 through 13. It says, Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God, and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. This is Moses talking to Joshua. And Moses commanded the people on the same day, saying, These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you've crossed over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. Well, guys, you know, and then when you read verse 34 of Joshua chapter 7, blessings and curses were read to the congregation. And if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, we find the very words of blessing and curses Joshua was to read to the congregation. You need to flip over there for the minute. Chapter 27 in Deuteronomy. 
Among these two chapters, listen to me and get this, there are 63 verses that deal with curses for those who disobey God's commands. And only 14 are dedicated to blessings for obedience. Do you realize this? I mean, this, is, what I, this final session is that you and I would have the words of God in our mouth and say what he's commanded us to say and not what some guy's book has been written lately. Because God told Joshua through Moses, this is what you're going to say when you get there. And, and, and how opposite to our day. 63 verses deal with curses for those who disobey God's commands and only 14 for prosperity and blessing for obedience. The emphasis by God through the difference in just the numerical number of blessings and curses clearly displays that within our message to God's people, we are to be warning continually of the consequence for disobedience. We are to say the hard things. No one goes out of my church on Sunday mornings a lot of times going, man, I just feel warm tinglys all over, you know, right? And I've, been, I've had people leave our church and they said that very thing. You know, when I leave church on Sunday, I just don't feel, I don't feel warm. And I'm like, so what? You know, I'll make you feel warm at my house sometime. Come by, I'll give you a cup of coffee while I tell you about disobedience. Oh, whatever, you know. Look, listen to Deuteronomy 27, 14 to 25. Listen. It says, this is what he's supposed to do. And the Levite shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice due to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's bed. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his mother-in-law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who attacks his neighbor secretly, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person, and all the people shall say, Amen. Guys, seems like this is not the kind of stuff you say at the victory party in the promised land when you just cut the ribbon on your new sanctuary. Amen? And God, it's like, wow, God, this seems like it would be a damper on the celebration. You know? If you notice in your Bible, God has the cursed behavior announced first. Priority. And then the blessings. How backwards to our friends like T.D. Jakes and Creflo Dollar and Kenneth Copeland and Hagen and all the other knuckleheads of our time. And after each behavior that, that will bring curses, what are the people to say? Amen. So be it. We agree. That settles it. Oh my gosh, dude. Can you imagine Sunday morning? You cut the ribbon on your new sanctuary and you preach this? Nobody's going to amen you. Can you imagine all the people of Israel? They've conquered AI. This time they get to keep the cool stuff from the war, right? God lets them keep the stuff. 
They're standing in the most strategic location in the promised land in control, and this is what is announced across the mountains in their midst. And you can almost hear the religious folk of our time, hey, you know, that's not a very encouraging or uplifting message. You know, this is a party in the salvation promised land. Now, where is Ephesians 4.29? Only speak a word that builds up, you know. I've heard that one many a time. And after a short, you know, announcement of, of blessings in chapter 28, verses 1 through 14, then, because that wasn't the consequences, those were just misbehaving situations, you know, and, and then God has Joshua to speak of blessings for obedience in chapter 28, verses 1 through 14, 14 verses, and then the consequences for disobedience begin, and they are listed from verse 15 to 68. 54 verses, and most of them, guys, contain multiple consequences. Listen to 15 through 19. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Guys, among all of these, listen to just a few. Verse 22, the Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning, with the sword, with scorching, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. Really? I mean, mildew? Who wants to hear about mildew on a Sunday morning when you just cut the ribbon on your new family life center? You know? Mildew? Inflammation? Where? (laughs) Consumption? A wasting disease? This is what it's called. Look at, I'm not going to read them, but look at verse 25 and 26. Your carcasses shall be food to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. Look at verse 27. The Lord will smite you with tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. Listen, guys, that doesn't make for great date night or pillow talk discussions, does it? Well, honey, I'm not into it tonight. I've got the scab. Well, that's okay, baby. I got the itch. You know, I mean, look. This is Sunday morning service on your big victory day. He says, the Lord will smite you, in verse 28, with madness and blindness and bewilderment of heart. Verse 30, you shall betroth the wife, but another man shall violate her. That doesn't make for Sunday morning services. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your very eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Your sons, verse 32, and daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes shall look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do. Verse 53, Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and daughters, because there will be a siege on you for punishment. Imagine, guys, having just built your beautiful little sanctuary, dividing the church into two halves. Okay, this morning we're going to sing like really cool songs in a round. I want you guys over here and you guys over here, and we'll just say amen. And you know, you can see it. And then you start with this. You're going to have this time of fellowship, and, 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 and this is the message. Listen, I can't even read. I don't even read for the tape's sake. Verse 56 and 57. That means you'll be going right there right now. You won't hear anything else I say for the next few minutes. But you go ahead and read it. Of how the, un, you know, the, the refined woman will act under the curse of being under an enemy attack, leading to hunger. It's just really too graphic and gross. Speaking of eating her own afterbirth. It's, 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 not, it's gnarly, dude. I'm telling you. It's nasty. 
14 verses concerning blessings and prosperity for obedience, and 66 verses associated with curses and consequences. That's the message in the valley of victory. And many of you have heard phrases from these blessings. 28 verse 13. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you only shall be uh, above, and you shall not be underneath. How many times have you guys heard that? You're not, the, you're, you're the head and not the tail. You know, all that strutting and foolishness. And yet, verse 44 of chapter 28 says the opposite. And the alien shall be the head and you shall be the tail. It's in the same message. How many times have you heard that? Guys, listen, back in Joshua chapter 8, verse 34, it says, All the words of the law, the blessing and the curses, curses, curses were read all that is written in the book of the law. Verse 35, not a word was left out, all that Moses commanded. And also in verse 35 back there, it says, Joshua read it all, and notice he read all of that graphic curse language to all the assembly, women, little ones, aliens, strangers living among them. Nobody got, this wasn't just for some man's group thing. This was to every single person in the church, if you will. Certainly you can see the parallel, guys. We are living in Canaan. God has given us the victory of salvation. And in this New Testament Canaan, he has displayed clearly for us the exact same paramount importance of obedience for our lives. As we stated earlier in our first session, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Hebrews 5.9, And having been made perfect, Perfect, Jesus became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. To all those what? Who? Obey him. Not to all those who say, yes, I believe there's a Jesus. Yes, I pray at night. So what if you believe? James 2.19 says even the demons know there's a Jesus. doesn't mean a thing. Listen, guys. The consequences of disobedience are displayed throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15.2 you know, Paul warns these guys, hey, listen, man, if you're not going to accept the doctrine of the resurrection, if you're going to blow all that off, it's nothing. He says, he talks about this gospel by which you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. You're wasting your time, he says. 1 Corinthians 10, we know is a warning against familiarity with God. It breeds contempt to where you just think, well, you know what, we've had a relationship with God in the past or what I always hear people, my granddaddy was a preacher, big deal. You're going to hell. You know, you're not going to see your granddaddy again unless you repent and give your life to Jesus Christ. Revelation 3, 16, warning us of the lukewarm church being vomited out. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and 27, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a terrifying expectation and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries of God. That's written to the church, guys. Romans 11, 19 to 22, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for the unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity. But to you, God's kindness, and here's the statement, if you continue in his kindness, Otherwise, you also will be cut off. It is one. Listen, these are the things we need to be telling people, but we won't. They won't. These are not the warnings we hear in church. 
Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20 to 22. For if after they have escaped, escaped, the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. These are the warnings of the New Testament, guys. The New Testament Christian has an obligation, you and I as point men, to point out the dangers of disobedience as well as the benefits of obedience. Just like Joshua, we have been called, the word is there, and we should be telling the church, you know what, young person? You have a life to give to God. You know what? If you're past 40, don't think you should be retiring and sitting down. Praise the Lord. If you don't have to work for a living anymore, then get busy for God and take up the rest of your day with that rather than golf. The New Testament Christian has an obligation to point out the dangers of disobedience as well as the benefits of obedience because there are huge benefits to following Jesus. Amen? Joshua read all of those severe and graphic consequences to all, the women and the children, and to the seeker, if you will, the stranger in the land. And it wasn't flannel board material. Amen? You know, you have the little mommy with her baby, and then all of a sudden the next flannel board picture is biting off the head. No, it's, I mean, it's sick, dude. If blessings and curses, curses were the message at the victory party and not the entire law, you know, because some people think it preached everything in the Torah, but the message, I think it was what we saw there. The message of the service didn't end on an upbeat note. Did you notice that? Read it. And today we have people saying, you know, don't preach about sin. Make sure the Sunday morning message is uplifting and entertaining. Don't talk about hell with the kids in the service. Guys, brothers and sisters, listen, brothers and sisters, you know, are dying because we refuse to preach that obedience is everything. And the church not just the unsaved world needs to know the consequences for disobedience in life, whether they stay in our churches or they leave. Bonhoeffer wrote uh, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, only those who truly believe will truly obey, and only those who truly obey truly believe. I believe that with all my heart. When we look in the New Testament at men, you might consider point men. Do we see such strong words coming from them? Well, let's see. Certainly John the Baptist would be considered one of the greatest men on point. Luke chapter 3, verse 7, he says, So he, John, began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath to come? Wow, whoa, dude. That's not very good for announcements in the morning before church, is it? Therefore, bear fruits. He goes on, he says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, prove your repentance. Are we so afraid to tell people that because we're afraid we'll slip into someone going, oh, you have a works theology. Listen, is that not what Paul said? He said, I preach to all men everywhere that they must repent and prove their repentance by their deeds. Listen, man, I know I didn't bring anything to the cross but sin. I didn't get saved because I earned it or did anything. I don't work 
to gain salvation. I work to prove my salvation. There's a huge difference. But if you don't have works, then James says you don't have salvation. Don't tell me you have faith in a God who is the King, the Almighty of the universe, who loved you and gave you life. And then in response to that kind of giving, you're just sitting there doing nothing in church week after week, giving nothing, sacrificing nothing, standing up for nothing. It's a joke, guys. Amen? Because John says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And he goes on to give them practical, tangible things they must do that changes, gives evidence of the change in their life. Guys, we are so caught up in a false idea of what grace and works is all about today. We don't push people to the place where they say, what must I do? Peter takes the point on the day of Pentecost in his sermon at Acts chapter 2 in verse 23 and in verse 36, Peter tells the Jewish crowd he is sharing the gospel with, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and the Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Not very seeker sensitive or culturally sensitive, right? Two times in his message, Peter calls his audience murderers of the Messiah. Jewish guys. And the results of this seeker-sensitive, culturally sensitive, post-Mosaic age message? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And what was his answer? You need to repent. Not y'all come, raise your hand, everybody close your eyes so that no one's uncomfortable. No, you need to repent. There needs to be a change of action in your life, a change of deeds. Guys, Jesus, as the ultimate point man, delivers his requirements for those who say they want to follow him as disciples. And one of the silliest things I've heard in these years has been this uh, teaching and this idea that, you know what, well, there were Christians, believers, and then there's disciples. Listen, what does the Great Commission say? Go out into all the world and make converts. Go out into all the world and make believers. Go out into all the world and make disciples. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Right? That's the only commission we have, and that's the only thing there is. So when Jesus gives his, his requirements to be a disciple, listen, it's for everyone and it's for salvation. And so we know, man, you're talking about a guy who said the hard thing Jesus standing both in Mark chapter 8 and Luke 14, it says, turning to the crowds that were following him. And we know, I'm not going to go there, but it, you know, his one in Luke 14 is off the hook. You must hate your father, your mother, your children, your own life. Dude, right off the bat, those guys were like, well, this doesn't line up with the Ten Commandments. How can this be the Messiah? Well, we have the benefit, you and I, of Matthew chapter 10, which tells us what? That he's saying we must love him more than them, not hate them with what the world recalls hate. But what a crazy thing to say. And then to a bunch of Jewish guys, to say to them, you must, if you want to follow me, you must what? Take up your cross, 
Do you realize how far-fetched and off the hook that is, guys? It means nothing anymore. I don't have time to quote Tozer and his brilliance and eloquence on the cross. But what we've turned the cross into, what a joke. I mean, these guys were looking for the Messiah, man. They were looking for someone to overthrow Rome. And the epitome of their hatred of the oppression of Rome was the cross. Because Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified on a cross. Only non-Romans. It was that thing that set out there that reminded you, rebel against Rome, and this is what you'll get. It was the, all, it was the apex of their hatred for Rome. And Jesus says, if you want to follow the one only Messiah, you have to take up your cross and follow me. There were men standing on that hill ready to go to war. They had heard of this guy who had spoke to wind and waves, who raised the dead, who drove demons away. And now he says, take up your cross? Do you understand why he says not many will follow me? And yet you and I witness men, even within our own movement, who have huge crusades and they, they preach little fluffy sermons about the prodigal son and no discussion about the cross, no discussion about death to self because Romans tells us the only way you can be saved is that you have been identified with Jesus Christ, you have been crucified with him, you have been buried with him, and you've been raised to the new life. That's salvation, men, and nothing else. The cross is not something you grow into after salvation. It is a line in the sand that you decide. I may not understand it. I may fear it. But Lord, I see who you are by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I am desperate enough to rid myself of this sin that I will embrace your cross and die to self. That I might be buried with you and raised to this new life of power over sin. Amen? Men don't preach that at these big crusades we see on TV. Why? Because it doesn't look good when you preach this, put all this investment and you preach and only five guys come out of a crowd of 500,000. No, we've got to have big droves of men come so we can pat ourselves on the back and convince ourselves we preach the gospel when in reality we didn't preach the gospel at all. Jesus said the hard stuff. Take up your cross to Jews. You almost want to go, Jesus... What is wrong with you? And this is exactly what we're saying today. If you would just preach it like this, you'd get a whole lot more response. It wouldn't have to be a narrow road. Paul, same thing. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he talks about the cross. The message is foolishness. The method preaching is foolishness. The messenger is despised. Why? So that when people do get saved, no one can take credit for it except God. And Jesus says, count the cost. How many preachers have you ever heard stand on the pulpit of a, of a crusade and say, you know what, you need to count the cost before you come? Never. You need to count the cost, guys, because there's a cost. Well, what do you mean? We don't add anything to it. We can't bring anything. It's completed. Jesus said, before you decide to follow me, there's a cost. How many of you guys know there's a cost? Count the cost, Jesus says. Because unless you love me more than your family, and there's guys who plan, you know, there's guys still taking their kids, and if I offend you, uh, okay, I'm not going to say I'm sorry, because then I'd be lying, and my sermon won't be anointed. But if you're one of those guys taking your kids to play sports in the fall rather than to church, shame on you, brother. I don't know who that is, so I'm not accusing or attacking any of you. But if you're keeping your kids from church on Sunday because you've got something else going on, you think it's shame on you. Shame on you. You love your kids more than Jesus Christ. You want your kids to be like, well, soccer was so important in my early formative years that I didn't go to church all that time because, well, the Parks and Rec's evil guys that they are put 
soccer on Saturdays and Sundays. I, I know it goes on. Idolatry is what it's called. He says, count the cost. Unless you give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. Listen, he's saying this to people who are expecting to get everything, guys. The Jews were looking for this Messiah, this Davidic king who was going to come, <laughs> overthrow Rome, and it would be a big party, and they'd be all hooked up. And he says this to these guys. A couple years ago, uh, I was at the uh, pastor's conference, and we were having an evangelism workshop. And I stood up and I said, guys, why is it the cross is never preached at crusades? And they gave me the most ridiculous answer and dismissed me because I'm a nobody. You know, who is this guy? Hey, sit down, boy. Stupid answer that was given to me. Well, you know, when Jesus said that out on the side of the hill, those guys have been traveling with him a few days. I'm like, so what? He said it to apostles, take up your cross daily. He said it to guys on the side of this mountain, take up your cross. I don't care if they travel with him a month. It still has the same unbelievable brutal effect. It just doesn't on us, guys, because we, it doesn't, it's not relevant to our minds in this culture where the cross means nothing more than something you hang on your neck or pin on the wall. Listen, in Mark 8, when Peter steps in, you, know, you remember when Jesus, you know, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Messiah. And he has this whole image of who Jesus is, and, and he says, you're the Messiah. <laughs> we are hooked up. And Jesus said, okay, you're right. Don't don't tell anybody. Because those guys were expecting to go to war at any moment. He says, don't tell anybody. And the very next verse says, and then he began teaching them that the Messiah must what? You know, be betrayed, be killed, be buried, and he would rise again. And in Mark 8, you remember when Peter steps in and tries to get Jesus to understand that his words were not the kind of words a Messiah should be saying? Remember that? Like, you know what? Everyone's going to misunderstand you if you talk like this, and nobody's going to want to follow you. Words of suffering and dying and rising again. And then in verse 33, it says, Jesus, and I think this is so critical, turning around and seeing his disciples, turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine the king of kings, God himself, looking into your eyes and saying, get behind me, Satan. The very fact that recorded just before the rebuke in the same verse, Mark 8, 33, is the words, but turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said this. It displays to me that Jesus was far more concerned with how Peter's attempt to make Jesus a more acceptable and palatable and relevant and culturally sensitive Messiah would affect others following him than Peter's feelings or his reputation. Get behind me, Satan. You see, Jesus, guys, is saying any attempt at redefining him for the sake of making him more palatable or more acceptable to the masses, it's Satan's work. And Jesus, speaking as a point man for the disciples, points out the tripwire and the man of danger at that moment in extreme fashion. Get behind me, Satan. It's brutal. This said to one who had laid down his fishing nets and his business and everything to follow him. You know, he'd given up everything. And Jesus, he, he doesn't go, well, you know, it's just a little misunderstanding. Let me straighten it. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus' words concerning what it would take to truly be a follower of Christ, a disciple, a Christian, they were words that, like Joshua's words on Mount Ebal, would have left no cause for great rejoicing over the lighthearted, warm and fuzziness of the message, guys. There's no way. That message was hard. 
those statements, if you want to be my follower, here's the requirements. No one would have been, oh, yeah, all right, let's do it. Let's go for it. No, I think most of the people walked off that hill that day when Jesus preached his words, and they said, this guy's an idiot. I don't care if he does command water and waves. He's an idiot. No way. And in Mark 8, Jesus says, he, he says this at the end of it all. If you are ashamed of me and my words. Remember that? Why? Because they were shameful words. Take up your cross. Give up everything. We were looking to get everything. What is wrong with you? And he says, if you're ashamed of my words, I will be ashamed of you before my Father. And there are hardly any pastors preaching the cross, the idea of denial of self, of loving God more than your children, of taking up your cross and dying to self, of giving up everything. No. Because why? They're ashamed of those words, and they're ashamed of the shame it'll bring them. And Jesus says, you know what? There will come a day, and I will be ashamed of you. Frightening words. Jesus told us in Matthew 7, 13 and Luke 13 that not many would follow him when he preached it perfect as God, not as a man with man's agendas, a narrow gate, a narrow road, and only a few will follow. So what do you think Jesus would say, guys, concerning the modern evangelism and ecumenical efforts to make him appear so tolerant, so open to being man's butler rather than being his Savior and Lord and King? To be obeyed rather than ordered around. Jesus would say to the Joel Osteens who deny him as the only way, get behind me, Satan. To the Rob Bells with their teachings of a false love allowing everyone to pass Jesus as the only means to escape an eternal hell, get behind me, Satan. Words for men like Kenneth Copeland who says, you don't have a God living in you, you are a God. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus would rebuke these men for their deceptive words and how they would affect disciples. And where are the point men for Jesus in our time, guys? Whose concern over the sheep being destroyed and Jesus being shamed is more important to them than their reputation in this dark age of false teachers, false unity, and heresy? Some may say, hey, Billy, you know, that was Jesus. Yes, but listen to Paul's words, guys, in Acts 13 to Elymas, the Jewish sorcerer who was harassing him You know, and consider, he says these words in the middle of his presentation of the gospel of love, his attempt to convince Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, that the gospel of Jesus was his only hope of salvation and peace in life. Verse 9 says, But Paul, or Saul, full full of the Holy Spirit, uh, fixes his eyes on Elymas in verse 9, it says, in verse 10, and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, you will not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord. This is in the middle of his crusade with Sergius Paulus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? Guys, we're the part point men of our day. When we've been dealing for years with the McLarens and the Bells and the Doug Pagets, who pervert the straight ways of the Lord. Is there no men more concerned about the honor of our king than our own reputations? Our church's reputation as being the kind, cuddly church? Many are the cowards of our day, guys, who cry out, you know, hey, pastor, don't name names from the pulpit. Listen, guys, yet the scriptures which we pattern everything else we do in church, the scriptures that we pattern our church practices after, display names recorded in shame eternally. 
2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Demas is listed as one who abandons a brother. 2 Timothy 4, 14, Alexander the coppersmith as one who does harm to the brothers and is eternally labeled as one to be avoided. Forever and ever, these men's names are recorded and labeled out for the church. 3 John chapter 3, Diotrephes, or however you say his name. 1 Timothy 1, 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander, men eternally labeled as men who rejected keeping the faith and a good conscience shipwrecked according to their faith. And you tell me not to name names. Why? They're in the Bible. These men are wolves. They must be identified. They must be. It doesn't make you popular. It's not going to make anybody happy with you. I will not surrender Jesus to the Kenneth Copelands and the Kenneth Hagelands and the Rob Bells and the Brian McLarens of our world. I will not surrender the idea that Jesus Christ is the only way, truth, and life, and no one gets to the Father except through him. I will not. I refuse to talk about God in some generic term. I know the name of Jesus, the only name that brings salvation to men. Amen? Amen. We cannot surrender that name and allow the wolves to have their way. Remember Paul in dealing with Elemus Peter dealing with Ananias and Sapphira were only men like you and me, guys. We sometimes elevate these guys to some place that they weren't. They were just like you and me. For too long, men have wrapped themselves in statements of cowardice, like, well, we can't judge a man's heart. I've heard that so much within our movement. So they do nothing when sheep are destroyed and our king is shamed. Though Jesus, as we just read a few minutes ago, said also, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth, he says, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. He said the same thing in Matthew 15, 18, and 19, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile a man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murderous, adulteries, fornications, thefts, faults, witness, and slanders. In other words, guys, what comes out of the mouth reveals the motivation of a person's heart. Don't tell me we can't see what's in a man's heart when what flows out of his mouth, Jesus says, reflects directly what's in his heart. Don't, I've heard it. It's like there's, there's a million little kind of legal twistings and angles people use to try to tie our hands up. And we can't fall for it. Not in this day. The true Christian, the spokesman for God, the point man, we are being marginalized at an exponential rate. And we have got to fight back, and it's time. Listen, don't tell me, you know, when Mike Murdoch on TBN starts another one of his latest seed scam offerings, you know, the Benjamin Blessing or the John 3.16 offering, if 316 people will send me $316.16, all that trash they talk. Don't tell me, guys, that we don't know the motivation of his heart. Amen? When you've got guys like Mr. Price talking about his $5,000 watch or so-and-so talking about his, you know, $1 million mansion or his $160,000 Bentley or whatever other stupidity they talk. Don't tell me that we don't know the motivation of their heart when they're asking you for money. Don't tell me that. Finally, guys, as we close this thing out, listen, brothers, the church needs point men. Families desperately need point men. Men that stand strong in the face of danger, even what looks like defeat, and yet will not yield. 
I, I, one of my favorite, you know those movie moments that you just watch and you just go, dude, you walk away so pumped up, you, you want to go work out, right? As old as I am and as cheesy as I look these days, you know, you just walk to your bedroom and whew, let me go work out, you know? I mean, you, I'm, I'm, you know? And there's one of those, movement, one of those movements, uh, when I look at Jesus standing before Pilate, right, having been beaten to a pulp by the fist of Roman soldiers and by the Roman whip, there he stands in the praetor- praetorium, right? The glory of Rome is displayed in everything, the marble floors, the grand columns, the tapestries, and all the other you know, trappings of Rome. Hey, and there, everything about the scene cries out that Rome is in power, and Jesus, you're being conquered. And Pilate says to Jesus in John 19.10, Do you not know what I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus standing there, you know, dripping blood and bodily fluid on Pilate's floor. I just see him lift up his head, hardly recognizable. You, sir, have no authority over me except that which has been given to you from my kingdom. Amen? Dude, that's one of those movie moments. That's a point man moment. You're ready to get in line and go with Jesus anywhere when you see that happen. Paul standing before King Agrippa. Remember that scene? King Agrippa comes in, his sister Bernice, the Roman governor Festus, the military commanders, it says, the prominent men of the city, the rich guys. And it says in Acts 25 that they all entered in great pomp, meaning it was a big scene when these guys came in, you know. Everything about the scene meant to belittle and intimidate Paul as he enters the courtroom in chains. And eventually, at the end of Paul's presentation of the gospel, Agrippa states to Paul, you remember the line, do you think in such a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul, standing in the midst of the scene that says, you, sir, are nothing, and we are everything, and Rome is in control, and, and Paul, standing there in chains, says to the rich, the powerful, those of status, standing there looking conquered, I would wish to God, sir, whether in short or long time, not only you, but also those who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Dude, that's a point man moment, Amen. I mean, to look at the rich and the wealthy and the powerful and to say to them, you have nothing I want, but I sure wish you had what I have except for these chains. That's the kind of men the church needs today. And you can be that kind of man, but it is a cost. It is a willingness to say and to do the hard thing that God calls you to do to protect his honor, to protect his gospel, and to protect the sheep of your fellowship and of your family. Amen? What a statement to those in the courtroom. And they must have looked at Paul and thought, you are mad. That guy's whacked. Brothers, that you and I could finish with words like Paul, spoken in his swan song, written to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 7. Facing death, and you remember, he was, in a, he was kind of in an apartment scene early on, but this is no apartment scene anymore. In fact, one brother, it says, had to search to find him. So he's down in a vile prison. He's at the end of his life, and he writes to Timothy, not like Solomon who had everything and from a throne says, oh, life is meaningless. He had all these women and all this wealth. and all. No, Paul from a cell writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, 
but also to all who have loved and longed for his appearing. And that's the call to you, and that's the call to me from a man dying in a prison cell, a call of victory. We will not compromise the gospel. We will go out running the race, and we will go out fighting the good fight, and we refuse to surrender any ground to anyone who would harm the sheep. We are called to be men on point. And we are called to finish with victory on our lips. But you cannot do that as a compromiser. You cannot do that as a man who just wants to get along and be like, as Paul said, if I now have become a servant of men, I can no longer be a bond slave of Christ. You cannot do both. Is that the kind of man you want to be, guys? The kind of man you have been? Listen, I just want to close with this thought. Hey, when I think back over the many years, and there have been a few, probably I don't know their names, you could throw them out to me. But I think in modern history, how many point men have there been? But I can think of women who were point men. Elizabeth Elliot, husband is speared through. You know, he's always the hero of the story with his great quote, But he's not my hero in that story. I mean, great, okay, he went there, he died, whatever. His wife is the hero. Do you know the story? He dies, and I think it's a year later, she takes her two-year-old. Get the video. Get the video, the documentary. Beyond the Gates of Splinter, bro, if it don't break your heart and challenge you as a man. She takes her baby along with Marge Saint, and they go into the jungle and live there to bring the gospel to the very men who speared her husband. No safety net. The wild Donnie were not one because Jim Elliot died on the beach. They were one because Elizabeth Elliot took her baby into the jungle. That's the point, man. Corey Tin Boom. How many men were in prisons? How many men's names do you know that went around and shared the gospel trying to win those very people who took their families and abused them? But Corey Ten Boom is a hero of Christianity, a modern-day hero of the faith. Amen? And I'll tell you, the, the final one is my daughter. 14 years old, dude, I'm telling you. On my island, I've done a couple of things that people have decided this is why we're a cult. Years ago, God spoke to me when our church blew up and all the rich guys left us. And God said, Billy, I want you to carry a cross from the Food Lion Shopping Center to the Buxton High School. Seven mile walk every Saturday for 10 years. I did it. Big 10 foot cross. And dude, if you don't think I didn't get ridiculed and blasted and thought of as a nutcase, and I thought, God, this is the stupidest thing you've ever asked me to do. I never went there one Saturday going, oh, yippee, I get to carry the cross again and look like an idiot to every surfer driving down the highway, every tourist. For 10 years, every Saturday, with a few exceptions here and there, I carried the cross because he told me. Every Saturday I argued with him, God, this is absolutely doing nothing. This is doing nothing for your kingdom. It's it's, no one is stopping and getting saved. They're only ridiculing me. They're ridiculing our church. And my daughter at 14 said, Dad, I'm not going to walk with you, but you know what? I really feel like this is something I need to do. And her and her friends built their own crosses and walked the opposite way. Surfing in the ESA. I was telling, uh, telling your pastor this morning, 
I never said anything to her, but she said, you know what, it's immodest to surf in a bikini, Dad. I'm going to wear board shorts. When she got to one of the events in Frisco, she got down there and she forgot her board shorts. Rather than surf in her bikini and say, ah, it's just one event, she put on my board shorts. She looked ridiculous and paddled out. She's at Liberty now. Last week she talked to me about her friends getting drunk in her room and it drove her nuts. She was in a regular dorm last year and kids in there cheating on tests and watching videos of lesbian behavior and everything else and telling them, well, it's not a big deal. And she's standing there fighting. My daughter's beautiful, dude. I mean, she is a gorgeous girl. Anybody that's ever seen her pictures knows she is beautiful. I'll show you one in a minute. And yet she hasn't dated. She dated one time and said, Dad, I can't do this and live for Jesus too. She's my hero. She's a point man. Shames me. Gentlemen, I didn't come here to make you angry. I didn't come here to leave having you think I'm some militant jerk. I just want to leave making sure we understand what we talked about. Session one. When no one takes the point, guys, disaster will follow. You are your brother's keeper. Session two, the responsibility is to judge dangers in the body of Christ, to judge those dangers, and to deal with them. You are the point man. In this last session, take the point. Say the hard things that are written in God's word, like Joshua did at Mount Ebal. Honor the king. Protect the sheep, honor his gospel. Father, I pray that, Lord, you would bless these men with a heart that is on fire for your kingdom. Lord, your word says that we have only a mist to live. My question has always been to myself, how much of a mist can I afford to waste if I only have a mist? Some of us in this room are over 40, some over 50. We don't have much of a mist left. So complacency is not an option for us. Mediocrity is not an option for us. I pray that there would be men who will come to their pastor this week and say, Pastor, I've been that aching in the church. I've been the sin in the camp, but no more. I pray there will be men who will come to Pastor Tim this week and say, You know, I want to be a man on fire on point. Help me. I pray that you'll strengthen my brother as he leads the sheep of Calvary Chapel, Richmond. Where I've failed the men today, Lord, and last night I pray they forgive me if there was any failure in it. Lord, they have my heart. They have my desire to see this church on fire. A place of holiness and righteousness that honors your gospel and honors your name. And refuses to give up an inch of ground. Let there be many men to rise up to be point men in their homes, with their children, with their wives, and in this body. Let your Holy Spirit fill this place with kindness and joy, patience and peace, love for sinners, but intolerance of sin. Move on us and change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.